And turn with me or listen on now as I read the sequel to that first wave of persecution. Here's now the second wave. Acts chapter 5 verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Hear God's word. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter's passing by might fall on uh, some of them. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they all were healed. Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors And brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the high priest, the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel. A teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census And drew away many people after him. He also perished and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that. They should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing 
that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Well, as I say, you have a kind of sequel to the events, uh, not just in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is uh, the account of the first outbreak of persecution, but it follows in the same way an account of miracles. It's a more lengthy account in chapter 3. But uh, the sequence, in essence, is this. In both places, you have a miracle or miracles, followed by imprisonment, followed by questioning by the Sanhedrin, followed by uh, the apostles, I would say, humbly defying the authorities. You have empty threats, which follow, and then the preaching goes on. So preaching, persecution, preaching. In essence, that's the sequence. And it's the sequence you find in both places. Again, we see the church under fire. That's what we have to bear in mind. Chapters 2 and 3, even 1 through 3, are so encouraging. And chapters 4 through 6 begin to paint a different picture. The church which is being tested, the church which is being purified, pressures from without, pressures from within. We've seen Pressures from without, pressures from within, and now pressures from without again. And then in chapter 6, we'll see pressures from within once more. Here's the thing that I find at once uh, amazing and, if I'm honest, discouraging. And I I feel as though I can relate to this. I, I almost said entirely, not entirely. I haven't faced these same kinds of trials, but I can relate to this one point. And that is the way one trial gives way to another. You would have thought, well, we withstood this single test, and then we withstood this test. Well, surely the Lord will give us rest. But that isn't the picture that we have here at all. We find that the Spirit is poured out on the church, and he is a Spirit who sanctifies the church that she might share in God's holiness, even as he did in the Old Testament. And that is a process uh, which leads from one test to the next to the next. In in seeming unrelenting fashion, uh, at, at times... We could imagine these men like we ourselves ask the Lord, will it ever end? When will the difficulties, when will the pressures let up? We expect relief having faced severe trials and and all that we find, one having passed is that another comes. It seems that it's always like that and that nothing ever changes. Well, it can be quite discouraging When that is what you find in the Christian life and in the church. But we are told to expect it. Jesus said, uh, as they treated me, so they'll treat you. And what we find in the Gospels is what we find in Acts. We find that uh, the the malice of men towards, uh, towards the Savior was now directed towards his followers. Even these very same men. But we also find that we will benefit from this that the easy life isn't the good life that the church grows through trials through difficulties just as the christian does so we need to see that it's not only expected but that it's something which is actually beneficial and thus we come now to the second wave of persecution what we notice about this is that it's more intense than the first it isn't just as though another trial comes but Having uh, passed the first test, so to speak, now a difficult, uh, a more difficult test comes. More intense, though certainly not the last. The first thing that we see, the thing that 
brought this about in the in the life of the early church was signs and wonders. Verses 12 through 16, just as it was in chapter three. In chapter three, you have an instance of one remarkable miracle and then a sermon. Here you you, you have the apostles uh, healing ministry. It's one of if you if you read these verses again, uh, verses 12 through 16, uh, you almost get the sense. So I confess I'm not sure, but I think I'm right in saying here's an instance of where Jesus said, you'll do greater works than I did. Well, uh, this this is similar at the very least to what we read in the Gospels. You have this uh, this broad, far reaching healing ministry. What was the purpose of the, the miracles, the signs and the wonders? There's, there's a great deal of the miraculous in Acts, just as there's a great deal in the Gospels. We find it here in the signs and wonders. We also find it in this angel who, who frees them. It's amazing to see what God was doing in those days. Well, what was the purpose of the signs and the wonders? Very simply, I don't want to dwell on this thought. I have a, I have a greater interest. The purpose was to authenticate the message. That's what God was doing. He was saying, my seal is upon these men. And we're not surprised to find as a result of their ministry, not only was the church formed and spread through all the world, but that they were enabled and equipped to write the New Testament. That's what God was authenticating in those days. And even uh, even today, he's saying, these are my men. They were entitled to write the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I've placed my seal upon them. Listen to them. Even as he said of his son, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So God is saying that of the apostles. I'm not sure we should look for anything beyond that. He's authenticating the message. He's confirming uh, the apostles as his messengers. But of far greater interest, and this is what I am especially concerned to stress here, from the standpoint of the church and her advance, for that is what we are considering in Acts, is the response that these signs and wonders produced in others. And it seems clear that Luke is especially interested to highlight this in what he says. Uh, he says, these were done among the people and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest here joined them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. There you see not just the miracle, uh, the ministry of miracles, but you find the response is what he's highlighting. In other words, what was happening to the church as a result of the miracles. This is the most fascinating aspect to me of what we have here. And as I say, it's the thing that Luke seems most concerned to emphasize. Well, what were the various responses? Yeah, there, there, there were three classes of men I, I think we could, uh, we could set forth here. There were those who in some sense were unaffected because they were already Christians. We, that's the first thing we read, that they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. What's he saying there? Well, Luke is saying once again what he's been saying throughout Acts. He's saying that the church, uh, this is what the church was. This is what she was like. That these who were already Christians were enjoying the unity of believers, the communion of the saints. They were with one accord. It's amazing to see how Luke uh, stresses that over and over and over again. You see, the church is under fire. She's under threat of persecution. Ananias and Sapphira were just killed by the Lord. And yet look at the church here in the midst of Peter and the apostles doing these mighty miracles. They were of one accord and they were under the teaching and the ministry of the apostles. They were there supporting them. They were uh, they were part of this one church. And so there was a unity of fellowship already in existence. 
And all that the Lord was doing for them was confirming the place of the apostles among them. And yet we read of a second class of people. Luke puts it like this. None of the rest dare join them. And so you have, in essence, of this crowd, you have uh, a smaller circle of the church of uh, believers of one accord and then a larger circle of people. The rest who did not dare join them. These were those who were witnessing and marveling the work of the apostles. They were aware of it. They weren't willing to deny it. They couldn't. And yet they were unwilling to join them. And so the picture is you have the church in existence and others who were standing outside the church. The people esteemed them highly. That's what Luke says. The sense you have is that they wondered at what they saw. And even in a sense, they desired to join them. And yet they were unwilling. Why were they unwilling? Well, they were unwilling because of precisely what they were witnessing. They were witnessing signs and wonders. They were living in days in which uh, great things were being done for the good of men, but once again, uh, they also saw uh, they also saw what the Lord had just done to Ananias and Sapphira. One of the things that we read uh, at the end of that account in verse 11, that's the verse that immediately precedes these verses, is so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. They were afraid, plain and simple. The rest who didn't dare to join, who were unwilling to do so, were too afraid to do so. They felt as though, uh, well, if I were to come in the church, then I would be standing on holy ground and God might kill me. And they were unwilling. They were unwilling to have anything to do with that. It was becoming clear that becoming a Christian. Let me emphasize this in a special way, because I, 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 I believe this is still true, even though we don't live in, in days of signs and wonders. Becoming a Christian is something that is inherently dangerous. You are exposing yourself if you come into, into the church to dangers that you will never face if you live outside the church and you have a kind of easygoing life going along with the spirit of the age. Well, now you're standing on holy ground. Now you have to answer to God in a more immediate way. Not only that, you are subject to persecution from without for fear of the Jews. They were unwilling to join. Why not? Well, why not just admire from a distance? Is that not the safer bet? That's what they were doing. Like Herod, they admired John. Or they, Herod who admired John, they admired the apostles. But they were, they were unwilling to go all the way. It was safer to stand at a distance. That's what they were doing then. That's what men are doing now. But still others join them. That's the third class, verse 14. And so we see the other side and the other possibility. And, uh, and really we ought to marvel at this. It's amazing to see, given the fact that the inherently dangerous prospect of becoming a Christian now was made abundantly clear, that people were still interested in joining the church. Again, it must have occurred to them, well, I'm subjecting myself to the wrath of man. And perhaps even I will be exposed to the, as the sinner and God will deal with me. And yet uh, they found this irresistible draw to join the apostles and the Christians. Is it not encouraging to see that the, the appeal of the church is strong even when the danger is great? Perhaps we could say, and I think I'm justified in saying, from the history of the church and the history of Acts, the, of the early church, that the, the appeal is the greatest, just as men are most afraid to join. 
For it's in those moments especially that the reality of her life and power is most apparent for all to see. The last thing that I would notice from these varied responses is the presence of a crowd. And also a multitude gathered. That's verse 16. Now this is a point I keep coming back to and perhaps you would say I'm making too much of it. But I see a great uh, similarity here between what was happening in Acts and what was happening in days of revival. For instance, in the first and second great awakening. That is to say, uh, the ministry of the apostles and the ministry of men like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and so many others. In both cases, you had men preaching the gospel. And they were preaching the gospel uh, at times when the Holy Spirit was being poured out upon the church. And the amazing thing that happens or, or that you notice uh, at such times is that uh, there is this general interest in Christianity. Suddenly men who were hostile, men and women who were hostile, are prepared to listen. They may be standing at a distance, but they're ready to listen. The, the crowds begin to gather. gather. Multitudes come to hear the preaching. If, if, you, if you study any amount of history at all, that's the thing that... Uh, that will impress you over and over and over again. And as a result of that, many are saved and the church is built up. Now, am I saying that it's always like that? No, it isn't. Because as you read the history of the church, you see another side of things. You see that often the church is resigned to the days of the remnant. Is the spirit not active in such days? I'm, I'm not saying anything like that. The spirit is active in the days of the remnant. He's active in the days of the multitude. I'm only noticing this point and saying that it is often true in the life of the church that when the spirit is poured out in a mighty way, that the crowds gather. Well, following signs and wonders, as a second point, you have the persecution which breaks out. Verses 17 and following. Let me briefly summarize what we have from verse 17 uh, through verse 42 and then look at some lessons that we might learn from uh, what the, the early Christians experienced. The first thing we see is that it is intensified in scope. It isn't just Peter and John. It's all the apostles were gathered and they were thrown uh, into prison. Only once again, we find it doesn't work. Miraculously, they are delivered by an angel. And we also see that they are commissioned. Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Go on with the preaching ministry. And so again, the apostles are found preaching. They are filling Jerusalem with, uh, with their teaching. What, uh, what the enemies of uh, the church were discovering was that they could not stop these men. They could not stop uh, the leaven of Christianity from spreading. And so they are brought before the council again. And the apostles give a timeless reply and defense of their ministry. It's a kind of mini sermon in verses 29 through 32. Let me just read those verses again. Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than man than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Well, what are the things we notice from this mini sermon? Or perhaps it was a full sermon and we just have a summary of it here. Well, we notice two timeless principles 
The first of which is we must obey God rather than men. It's very similar to what they say in chapter four. And we read this earlier, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So here they say we ought to obey God rather than men. Uh, I would say, given the realities that they faced, and I want to uh, save this uh, point for the lessons uh, later on in the sermon. But this this statement encapsulates The essence of what it is to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who obeys God first and foremost. And let me just leave it at that and elaborate later on. But the second timeless principle they state in verse. Well, where do they state it? Verse 32. There it is. That we are witnesses. We are witnesses. And that is something that I would also say is always true. Uh, capturing perhaps not the essence of what it is to be a Christian, but here the, the essence of what it is to be a church. The task of the church is this, to be witnesses. Do you remember what we read at the beginning of Acts? Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus commissioned his apostles. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. In Jerusalem, that's what we see here, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so as preachers, they were witnesses. These were things about which they had no freedom. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. That's what Paul says. That's what Jeremiah says. That's what so many ministers have said ever since. In other words, they had no liberty in this. They were entrusted with a message. They were stewards. They were entrusted with, uh, with the message of salvation in the name of Jesus. And not only that, we notice this in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Uh, we also notice it here. That as they were entrusted with, uh, with the message of salvation, so they were also endued with power from on high. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. That's precisely what we find ever since the Lord said those words. That the ministry of the Holy Spirit was prominent in their witness-bearing ministry. In fact, uh, let me go a step further and say uh, what I think Peter is saying here and the other apostles, he says, we are his witnesses and so also is the Holy Spirit. You see, he's not just saying, and I thought he was saying this at first, but I realized that wasn't right. He's not just saying this Holy Spirit has made us witnesses. That is true. But he's actually saying that we are his witnesses and so too is the Holy Spirit. The fact that God has poured out the Holy Spirit and you are witnessing these things in this general way is the witness and the testimony of the Holy Spirit of what? That Jesus is the Christ. That he is the son of God, that there's salvation in no other name, not just the the, the preachers, but the spirit as well. This is what Jesus says in, in John chapter 15. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify of me and you also will bear witness. The dual witness of the spirit and of the the preaching now or the apostles, what were they witnessing to? Well, I've already said it, but let me try to put it in the words which they use here. Their witness uh, concerned what God was doing. You see, they keep putting it this way. And and I, well, I find it interesting to see they're saying you're trying to put his blood on our heads and we're not going to allow that. 
And they're, they're not interested in saying, no, that's not true. They say, you murdered him by hanging him on the cross. So, but that wasn't the great point. They were willing to own this point. The blood was on their hands. It was on their heads. But the great thing they were witnessing to, that's really more of an aside. You murdered him, but the great thing was what God had done and what God was doing. God determined, as they said in an earlier, in an earlier sermon, God determined to hand him over into your hands, that you might lay hands on him, that you might kill him. But not only that, though you murdered him, God raised him up. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered. You put him to death, but God raised him up. He exalted him. He now enjoys the highest station. He is. God exalted him to his right hand to be prince and savior. Jesus is prince and savior. That's the testimony. That's what they're witnessing to. What God had done, what God was doing. And what was the result of such an act of God? Raising his son from the dead, seating him at the the highest place as prince and savior. What became possible as a result of this? What did God accomplish? Well, this to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins by raising up this Jesus whom you crucified, whom you murdered. What God was doing was this. He was saying to you now through me. That there is the possibility of repentance, there is the possibility even now of forgiveness as I, as I said in an earlier sermon, so now I say again, and I, and I hear Peter saying this, that Jesus Christ stands in heaven ready to forgive. He'll forgive you even now. The vilest of sinner, even the men who laid hands on him, who murdered him, who saw to his death, even now he's been exalted and he stands ready to forgive you. Here's the possibility, that of repentance, that of forgiveness, that of a new birth. Do you see that Peter was preaching the gospel to these men? He would persuade even his enemies of the gospel, of their need of salvation. He was telling them that even now they might be saved. And do you notice as well the double emphasis on obedience? He said, we must obey God or we ought to obey God rather than men. That's the first thing he says. And then it's the last thing he says. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Oh, uh, they said to their enemies, we must obey God. But they also said, why, why don't you obey him too? Why don't you repent? Why don't you believe? Why don't you give up your opposition? Do you see what will become possible? Do you see what will become true of you if you give up your disobedience and your rebellion and you begin now to obey God through repentance? It, it, it's amazing. I almost can't believe he says it. But he actually says this. If you but obey God... He will give you the Holy Spirit so that you'll become his witnesses as well, along with us. You who hate him, you who wish not only for his death and demise, but ours as well. Well, they don't become witnesses. They don't obey. They are enraged by what Peter says in this mini sermon. And they begin, as they had done with Jesus, to plot their death. But they're talked down by Gamaliel. After that, I I don't really have any interest in in considering that point any further. After that, the apostles are beaten. 
which is something beyond anything they had yet to experience. And so we see the persecution is still growing. And then they are threatened as they were before. And it all resolves with this. They rejoice. They rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. And finally, they go on preaching. That's the total picture. It's not done until you see that as well. What are the lessons that we might draw from this episode? Well, the first is this. It is instructive to see how the early church faced and responded to persecution. That's one of the main values of reading any kind of church history. You want to see what was true in the happy times. And I admit that's the kind of Christian biography I love to read. Uh, When the church was flourishing, when the preaching was being generally accepted, when many were being saved. Uh, But it's also instructive to read of the difficult times and the way these two things often tend to go hand in hand. Uh, For the most encouraging biography that you'll ever read will often be full of this as well. The difficult times. We see how these things are inevitable and unavoidable. There's no way to avoid these things. Not if you're really following Jesus. Indeed, if you're not facing difficulties, if you're not facing testing and trial, you might begin to wander. We see that the church is being opposed by Satan. The church is being opposed by the world. But the other thing that we see is that God, uh, and this is a point I keep making, but I make it again, that, that God is testing the church and he's purifying the church. And so it becomes clear to us, just as the first lesson, that we ought to expect the same. We should not expect ever for Jesus never told us to expect that becoming his, fathers would, uh, his followers would mean an easy life free of troubles. We ask the question, what does the future hold? We face some difficulty, but are we bound to face greater difficulties? Will we continue to be tested? Will we continue to be tried? Will these things become harder? The truth is we don't know. Not specifically, but in general. Let us all take to heart that there will be difficulties. There will be trials. Inevitably, there's no way to avoid this. And that brings me to the next point. Given that, see what their priorities were as they faced difficult times. Let me say again, it is impossible to be a Christian untested. If you are a Christian, you will be tested. You will be tested in your priorities. You will be tested uh, in your beliefs. Especially in this way. And this is what Luke is making clear to us here. All of your life, you will find yourself in conflict with the world. You will find the world in conflict with your message, with your values, with your lifestyle, with your commitments. There's simply no way to be a Christian and not be tested on the basic priorities uh, and the basic tenets of Christianity. The world will claim these things of you, and thus you will be tested. And it will become clear at such times what you really believe and what your priorities are really are. Now, in one sense, you could say that these priorities need to be formed before the trial. They need to be crystallized in your heart and in your soul in prayer before the Lord. And as you sit under the preaching, the church needs to be prepared. That's what I'm saying. And that's true. But in another sense, it is true to say that these things only ever become clear and can become clear once the church is tested. For when it was easy, it wasn't so clear. What did I really believe? What was, was I prepared to suffer for these things? Well, I don't know. But once you begin to become tested and tempted and tried, once you begin to face the opposition of the world, once the world begins to really demand something of you and you're set to the test and you have to make a decision, whom will I follow? Whom will I obey? Well, then and only then does it really become 
clear. It is, it is folly to think that we can be Christians and be untested, that we will not have to face such things ourselves. We must, in other words, obey God rather than man. And let us consider what this involves. As I say, that's a kind of uh, statement that's always true. That's a statement of what it is to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who obeys God. And we find that throughout Scripture. Peter, uh, or Paul says, uh, have I begun to please men? Was it my desire to, 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 uh, to, to please man, to gain the favor of men when I preached the gospel to you? He says that in Galatians. Jesus so often tells us that we have to make a choice. Choose this day whom you'll follow. Are you prepared uh, to give up your nearest and dearest relations? But let me, well, nearest and dearest relations, let me finish the thought. In order to follow me. That's what Jesus uh, tells us. That so often, uh, so often the choice to follow him involves. But this does not involve disobeying man automatically. You see, Peter and the apostles were not saying we must not obey men. They did not say that. We might have read them to say that or heard them saying that, but that wasn't the case. Their attitude, in other words, to authorities was not one of pure defiance. It would be easy to read a verse like this and to feel justified in your rebellion, your spirit of rebellion, your spirit of defiance, your unwillingness to be subject to the governing authorities. As these very men say in other places based upon a verse like this, but that is not what they were saying. How can anyone ever read the New Testament and think that's what they were saying? What it does mean, and let me try to make this as clear as I can, and this isn't always easy, but uh, applying this principle, but this has to be a kind of master principle that governs the church. It means that when these things are in conflict, we are prepared to disobey. When obeying man involves disobeying God, we must be prepared to disobey Man. In other words, obeying man is something that is relative. It is not absolute. It's never absolute. It is only uh, it is only ever true in the sense that we are obeying God. We are obeying uh, a relative authority relative to God's authority. But when these things are in conflict, well, we are prepared to disobey because obedience to God is something that's absolute. That means it's always true. It's always our duty. And what we need to see is that these things are almost always in conflict. I think that might be the great error of the 20th and the 21st century. We became deluded into thinking that the world and the church were one. They were, they were never at odds. That we could be a Christian and never have to disobey the authorities that be. That's not the testimony of history. And it will not be the testimony of our own day. These things are almost Always at odds. And so we should expect to be tested in the same way as these men. We should expect it to be asked of us. Are we willing to say, I must obey God rather than men? It is folly, beloved, to think that we will never have to say such things. That we will never be tested like this. And if that is so, we must be prepared to suffer at the hands of men. Even to rejoice to do so. And that's one of the most uh, remarkable things to see here. Not just that they suffered. Not just that they were willing to suffer. But that they rejoiced to do so. They counted it a blessing. They said, Lord, you have counted us worthy to share in the sufferings of the Savior. 
You see, in a way, there is no way to test this point until we've suffered something for it. It's easy to take a posture of boldness. Peter himself proves this. And some of us will be humbled even as he was. We'll take a bold stand and then we'll be tested and we'll fail utterly. But here's the point. If you're a Christian, you will be tested and you will suffer for what you believe if you take a stand for Christ. There's no way to avoid this conflict. And until we learn to relish the fight, as God does, as these men do or did, until we learn what it is to rejoice, to be counted worthy, to suffer for the name of Christ, we will always be ineffective in our witness or as witnesses for him. And we will be prone to compromise and cowardice. What is obedience to God? He says we must obey God rather than men. Well, what is obedience to God? That's the great question. And the main thing here, if we look at the preaching of the apostles, if we look at their priority and their commitments, it means obedience to God means obedience to his son. God was witnessing to his son. The spirit was witnessing to his son. They were witnessing to his son in the preaching. And what they were saying this was this. That we must obey the son. We must kiss the son lest he be angry with us. Psalm 2. And that's what they were preaching. That's what they were willing to preach and to suffer for as his ministers. As well as the thing that uh, this crowd of people, the, the, the church that was of one accord, that's what they were willing to hear, even to suffer for hearing. Jesus is Lord. Obey the son. Listen to him. Kiss the son. You see, the test is just as simple as that. Do we have any right to say that? Do we have any right to claim it that Jesus is Lord and that he must be followed? He must be obeyed above all else. And I must never forsake him, not on a single point. I must never compromise my commitment to him if ever the world should ask me of that. And it is on this point that the church will always be tested. Her commitment to Jesus Her commitment to following Jesus. That's just the point at which the world wants to test us, just as it was doing here. In other words, it's really just a question of whether the church has any right to exist. And whether we are justified in inviting others in. You see, that's what Peter and the other apostles were doing. They weren't just saying, well, leave us alone. Uh, Let us have our services and preach our sermons. But they were saying, you know, what I really wish more than anything is that you would join us. That you would come into the church having believed and obeyed the Son. Well, it's also instructive to see as another lesson the difference that the gospel makes. It's amazing to see the animosity and the hostility it brings. At the same time, it's equally amazing to see how men and women would gladly join a persecuted church rather than perish in their sins. That's the difference. It's really as great as that. One man is ready to kill you. The other man is ready to join you and be killed. That's the difference the gospel makes. And does that not testify to the power of God to save? We also have a kind of theology of preaching here. What I want to especially notice is the element of witnessing. A witness that is possible only as men are aware of the basic facts of the gospel and their basic significance. In other words, we see what... Excuse me. 
we see what these men were preaching was really twofold. They were stating the facts of the gospel. They were witnessing to them. They were aware of the basic facts. They understood the gospel in that sense, but they also were able to witness to its significance to the hearers. They were able to apply the doctrine. They knew the doctrine. They applied the doctrine. They said, Jesus is Lord. He's reigning in heaven. What does that mean, though? It means that repentance and forgiveness of sins might now be preached to all, even the worst. That's what they preached. Not only that, there is something even beyond that. And that is the importance of the Holy Spirit in preaching. That's a common refrain in Luke. He wants us to see what made the difference in the preaching of the apostles was the presence and the power. Or we could say the witness of the Holy Spirit. So that what really happens is that he comes along and he makes us witnesses, as Jesus says, especially uh, those who preach. You shall receive power from the Holy Spirit and you shall be witnesses to me. But the last thing I would notice, the last lesson, having seen the theology of preaching, is the theology of the church. We've seen that they were of one accord. We've seen they were persecuted yet thriving. But look at the last verse. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Again, we notice the interest they had in the preaching. It was almost impossible in those days to satisfy their hunger for it. They were like newborn babes, Peter says in another place. They couldn't get enough for it. Their, their thirst for uh, the pure milk of the word was insatiable. Daily they were preaching to them, and yet the, the apostles could not satisfy their appetite. Especially uh, as it was spirit-filled preaching, full of power. Their appetite was immense and growing. Daily they met. That is what you always find, again, uh, looking at the history of the church, what you always find in times of revival. You find not, not simply two services on a Sunday, but you find services throughout the week. How do you account for it? Well, you account for it in the sense not only that men are equipped to preach, but that the people are given an appetite for it. They say, uh, you've, hardly, uh, you've hardly satisfied us with two sermons on Sunday. Meet with us again on Monday. Go on preaching to us. That hunger for the word is what the spirit creates and can only create. Uh, only he can create, I mean. And I ask you, is it possible that we know anything about this ourselves? A hunger for the word, a thirsting for the word. I won't claim that we're living in days of revival like these. Uh, and I keep stressing, you can't manufacture this. You can't say, well, we're going to hold daily services. Then we'll be a church like that. That isn't how it works. You see, the spirit first creates the hunger and he supplies the preaching. Then it happens. No, we're not living in days like these, but neither would I claim that we know nothing of this. We do. We know something of the power of the spirit in preaching and what it is to long for the word of God. Let me just ask you this as simply as I can. Do you find anything for your souls in the preaching? Anything to help you? Having heard of Christ... Do you wish to hear more of him? In other words, is there any reason to come back for another sermon? Or was, uh, was this sermon enough? To keep doing what these men were doing. Listen again. Daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. We live in days where... I don't know how else to put it. It says 
they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And I would say that the church has ceased teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The sermon has given way to the homily or other things. And the doctrine isn't what it once was. You see, it's a question of the message and the method. Both are uh, both have changed. And yet I find a few of us still have not ceased to teach and preach Jesus as the Christ. And there are still those who are interested in hearing it. You see, the method and the message still are what they were. And the only deficiency I'm aware of is that we're still capable of more of this. Not that the church needs less preaching, but more. I wonder if you read a book like this, the book of Acts, and come to a similar conviction. And that is the final lesson, a theology of the church. That's what the church in Acts teaches us. And again, I ask you, as I've been asking throughout this series, is that what you want? Do you want to be a church like that? A church that's interested in the preaching and the teaching of Jesus as the Christ? Is that what you hope to find in this place always? The presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, especially as he witnesses to this new life as it is found in Jesus through the preaching. Amen. And let us stand together one, one final time and sing hymn 465, hymn 465.